Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I am one of your hosts. And today we're here with a guest host, Brian Miller, who is a couples and sex therapist. He is a musician, father, a husband, and a communist. Brian is here today to bring an outside perspective on identity politics and some of what he saw as missing elements in our identity politics episode. We're going to take Brian's ideas and try to present some outside perspectives and see if there's any more light that we can shed on this idea of identity politics. And so welcome to Heterodox Americana. Hello. I'm happy to be here. So as you well know, this show is about a commitment to taking a very close and um, careful approach to ideas and different perspectives. And as a listener, Brian also had some, how do you describe it? There's, there are some linen-shaped holes in your thinking, Raphael. <laughs> There's a linen-shaped hole in, uh, in some of the ideas that we covered. So we're going to talk a little bit about how linen may or may not be able to fill some of the, uh, the idea holes that we've talked about thus far. Um, identity politics was one of the ones that was at the forefront. Tell me about the, the linen-shaped hole. Do, do we need to talk about the merits of, of Lenin first? Oh, I mean, we can. I mean, you know, I, I really appreciate those episodes a lot. I, I thought um, you had a lot of really smart, insightful things to say. And, uh, you know, and even even the way you said some things, I, I don't know if I would say them exactly that way. or Like what, for example? Uh, you know, like, I think, you know, your idea that, like, you know safe spaces and campuses were like uh you know maybe uh, a detriment to like resilience sure which i thought was a really uh interesting idea i would just never say that like as like a white dude i wouldn't like go <laughs> to some to some black people and be like hey like what's up i have this idea do you want to hear it <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah i do uh well i mean to, to be you know, fair. I, I don't always feel comfortable talking about um, saying anything bad in that in that regard about like yeah. safe spaces or you know the kind of feeliness yeah. of it. Yeah. But if we think about where we were, let's say, um, let's say we were thinking about where we were 15, 20 years ago yeah. as a black person on campus and yeah. what it meant to kind of. I mean, sometimes you have these things that might today might be called microaggressions. Yeah. Uh, but you have to field your way through like all those experiences. Absolutely. And then they match in the larger world. Absolutely. Uh, so 100%. The, the larger world doesn't protect you yeah. in this way. And the question is, what does it mean when you are protected at home and then protected on campus and then reality punches you in the face with a skill set that you haven't developed yet? You haven't yet. developed yet, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was a fantastic idea. I, I just wouldn't I just wouldn't say it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Fair but like, enough. I felt like for me, um, the linen shaped hole, or or like, I feel like listening to that 
podcast, those two podcasts, I, I felt like I kept being, I kept pausing it and just being like, you know, like, like Mao would really have something to say here, or like Huey Newton would, have, would really have a uh, a way of kind of expanding it. You know what I mean? So let's let's start with Lenin to begin with. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about Leninism, um, kind of writ large? What, what is Leninism? Sure. Um, I think, I, I mean, let me, can I back it up a second? Go. Yeah, I'm, let, let me back it up a second. No doubt. So, um, I, I just feel like it's it's good to kind of give a, a little tiny bit of history of my own history. Yeah. So, when I, when I first heard about communism in uh, 1999, I thought it was like totally, it was like, oh, this is evil, right? Like, totally. I was shocked that so i went to a uh i've been learning about social justice stuff okay and i saw a uh in san francisco where i lived at the time i saw a poster for uh mumia it was a they were gonna do a a big protest about mumia and they were asking volunteers to come and help make signs or something so i was like oh i'm gonna i'll go do that And, and for i mean just quickly for the people who are not in philadelphia and who don't know about mumia abu jamal I'm sure this is something we'll have a little bit in the show notes so that you can so that you don't have to explain Mumia. Great. Uh, but also the internet, Google is your friend, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, he's a political prisoner and uh, uh, somebody who comes from the black radical tradition. Right. Uh, and he's in jail right now. Anyway, so um, so I saw this uh, little flyer. So I went to this thing and they're all very nice people. Um, and then I heard, and at some point they were like, you know, oh, like, you know, we're communists. And I was just like, what? Like, this makes, it, it makes no sense. Like, <laughs> like communists, like in my mind at that time, I was like, well, communists are like basically like Nazis or like evil people. It's like the like, opposite of social justice. Exactly. It's like Rambo, whatever, not Rambo, uh, Rocky, wherever he fights the communists. Right, He's like right, this right, evil right. machine or whatever, you know, um, and I th- you know, as somebody, you know, I was born in 1974, so I got a ton of anti-communist right. indoctrination right. during the Cold War. Um, so it took me a very long time to come around to Lenin. So I mean, what was the turning point, though? Oh, the turning, well, the, I mean, so I was 24 when I walked into this meeting, and... Um, uh, you know, when you're 24, there's, a, you know, 10 or 20% of your, you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> there's 10 or 20% of your brain that's sort of like, oh, where are some good looking yeah. girls? And and there weren't any for a while. And I, and that 10 20% of my brain, uh, I would just like to stress that 80% of my brain was, was wanting to fight for Mia, <clears throat> But 20% of my brain was disappointed. And mm. then uh, Nancy walked in and Nancy is my wow. wife. Nice. Um, so honestly, it was you know like I'm I'm a um, you know like I, I have like a I, I'm a sensitive soul like I have a poet's kind of way of being in the world. Okay, I, I feel. Um, uh, I'd say that's fair. And also, my brain is is hardwired to avoid conflict of any kind. Wow. Um, so communism doesn't come like easily to me. Like it took a long time sure. to like understand what, you know, why I would come to that. But, you know, so then Nancy was my girlfriend eventually. And then now she's my wife. And so we spent, you know, years talking about, 
um, these kind of things. And I think the turning point for me was when I was like, okay, there's these communists doing this little thing. And the turning point was the Iraq war as it was building up 2002, 2003. This is the second. The second one. And, you know, Nancy and her small batch of comrades were uh, the main organizers of these like you know tens of thousands of people like a hundred thousand people would show up at a demo and that demo was organized by communists and I was just like wow I never knew that that was a thing huh you know so was it just their ability to organize is that what well it's the Leninist model of organizing Raphael oh (laughs) and here we are with uh, now Lenin is relevant Uh, what is I guess I, I know nothing about the Leninist model of organizing. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, um, the Leninist model of organizing uh, is a communist party style of um, organizing. And, and very generally speaking, uh, a communist party is um, really kind of two things. Uh, one, it's democratic within itself. Okay. Uh, and then once you're... Dem- mean, one- meaning that party members within a, a cell or something like that right. have some kind of democratic he, way heated of... Heated discussions. Okay. Heated debates. Um, and we, we, we argue stuff out, you know, like we're having a retreat in a couple of weeks where we're going to argue stuff out for two days and we're going we're gonna to nail down a, a, a strategy. And then... Uh, once we nail down that strategy, even if you were a dissenter in that in that strategy, you still go along with what the party has decided. It's, it's a collective, democratic way of organizing. So I understand. So it, you're always looking for some kind of consensus. Uh, you were looking for consensus within the group, but but you know, like I can think of a whole bunch of times where we were having a discussion about, you know, how, what our strategy should be going forward with this particular action or this particular struggle. And I lost out. I see. And I still went along with what the majority of the party members decided to do. Gotcha. So, I mean, there's really two parts of uh, Leninism writ large. One, is that the expression? Yeah. Writ large. One is the, the organizing model because Lenin took... Uh, Marxism, which was a, a philosophy of uh, people's liberation, and then he used it to liberate uh, Russia from the rule of the Tsar in 1917. Gotcha. And he took a lot of notes, and he did a lot of writing. He took a lot of notes from Marx? From, well, he took a lot of notes from Marx, and also he took a lot of notes from what worked and what didn't work during oh, the revolution. Uh, and so we, we then can study that and we can see like, oh, what, what worked and what didn't work. So well, let me go back to something because you were talking about um, you were talking about this concept that you were having about how evil it was. Yeah. At one of these meetings. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that it's a stretch of the imagination to say that probably many people. I mean, we had a whole propaganda campaign. Right? We did. Um, so I think lots of Americans very much still think about communism as evil. Um, certainly, we we know about the, the kind of historic uh, atrocities that happened, right? And yeah. why, why is it not evil? How'd your mind change on that? Um, I, you know, honestly, I think there's... I saw who was doing the work, mm. and I wanted to be with people who are doing the work. 
like, you know, I don't, do you remember Shaka Sankofa? I don't. He was a black man in Texas in maybe 2000 who, you know, once again, like extremely shoddy evidence and was executed and uh, for murder. And, uh, you know, as, as he was about to be executed, there was like, you know, a stay or something for a 24 hours. Stay of execution. Yeah. And I was just like, no. Like, you know, there's just some times where you just let you, you, for me, I'm just like, no, I I can't just sit back and read my novel and, you know what I mean, to do nothing. Like, I have to do something. And it was the communists who were doing something. So the Democrats were doing something. Right. You know what I mean? The communists were. So they were doing, they were actually doing an action and uh, I got arrested with a bunch of people and it was just a real turn. It was, that was another turning point for me. It was like, oh, they're doing something. So let me see if I can encapsulate this. Just whatever, what year was this? That was 2000. So this is 2000 and uh, it sounds like you had a moral objection to, to the state executing this man. Yeah. I guess uh, you would call it moral, yeah. And it was enough that you you wanted to do something, and there was a group, the communists, who were yeah. they were doing something about it. Yeah. And so you were like, "I'm down with this." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of absolve the the kind of historical? No. So I so you know Nancy and I. I mean, you know, we've had so many arguments and discussions over the years, and I you know I the way I am uh, like hardwired is I, I have to um, I have to do things with integrity like I have to do things like where, the, where it matches like with all of me right and so I just had to hit the books I just had to do a ton of research mm. you know on like you know like so people talk about Stalin let's okay let, let me understand Stalin or the Soviet Union so I've read just a ton of books on the so you know there's you know like Isaac Deutscher's biography of Stalin is amazing uh, Michael Parenti wrote a really book, really good book called uh, Black Shirts and Reds by the Soviet Union. Brian, was there a moment that you said, when kind of considering the history and considering what you're reading, was there a moment that you said to yourself, oh, I get it, or it, maybe the portrayal was... I mean, how'd you resolve that kind of internal conflict? Or was there one? I just had to... You know, it's like... So, I mean, you know how, like... Um, you hear something on the news, or, you, or there's sort of like an assumption in the air, sure, in, under in our society, in our capitalist society, right. and then uh, you do some research on it, and it turns out it's the opposite. Freedom, yeah, contra, sure. yeah, the freedom, the contras in Nicaragua are freedom fighters. Okay, um, you know, uh, you know, like uh, I believe it's Rambo Two, where where it, it, the end credits scroll up. And it says, uh, in the original version, it says, um, you know, thank you to the brave, uh, uh, you know, freedom fighters of the, the brave Muhajadeen freedom fighters. Oh, really? It's like there's, there's, there's all, everything's switched on its head. It's like, you know, Maduro is a dictator. Um, You know, uh, there's all these kind of, uh, you know, Stalin was kind of a bloodthirsty, evil you know, kind of Nosferatu character, you know, and, and then Nosferatu, and then nice. you kind of do some research and you're like, oh, actually, these are the opposite. There's so many examples of that where I was just like, oh, it's like Iran is this evil country, 
But then you do some kind of research on it and you're like, oh, there's this whole history to CIA intervention in democracy in Iran. It's like, huh. So here, here's a, and I, I'm not sure if you would agree with this or not. Um, you know, I'm, a lot of this show doesn't really talk about politics that are uh, kind of in the, in, the, in the international realm. I mostly talk about the things that are happening domestically. Um, but for me, when I talk about the, the international realm, we can't get away from state violence, right? Sure. Um, and part of my worldview, and I, I think it's hard to argue, I think it's hard to argue against this, is that states are kind of modern conception of the nation state. Yeah. States are inherently violent. Absolutely. Um, even you know part of how we think about legitimacy, Max Weber has a... Um, a definition for what legitimate violence is. And yeah. He says the state is the legitimate, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of. Yeah, if the state does it, it's correct. Right. If the state the uses violence. violence, then yeah. it's correct, and that's exactly. kind of you know built in our in our understanding of yeah. what state legitimacy is. Yeah. Um, and so, if, if I have to, and again, uh, you probably, uh, I, not probably, you definitely understand what happened in the Soviet Union better than I do, and. I, for the record, am no friend of the Soviet Union. Great. Um, but we also can't get away from the violence of any state, right? And then the United States, if if there's anybody who thinks that the United States is not a violent actor in the world, then it only means that we've had um, we've had really good PR. Absolutely. Uh, looking at the Philippines, looking at Cuba, looking at even Puerto Rico. Yes. Um, it's, yeah, you cannot get away from yeah. Vietnam. You cannot get away from the inherent violence of states. Even, even you know, I mean, I don't want to go too much off on t- uh, of a tangent, but even looking at Sweden, okay. which we love the Swedes, That's right? right? Ikea, we got the meatballs, yeah. Swedish chef, everybody, Swedish every, fish. Everybody loves the white socialists. Right. Even Sweden was the, you know, it was the hegemon in that region for a good while. And so if yeah. you look at Sweden's uh, relationship to Norway and Denmark and Finland, you yeah. see that the Swedes were, it's not all good. And right. I would argue that it's, in, it, part of being a state is that there's violence built into that. Correct. At any rate, back to... We, I think we agree on that. Okay. And I think what, the, where we would, where there would be some friction between how we see it is that uh, I think there are, are examples of good violence. Give, 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 me, give me an example. Oh, uh, psh, uh, the U.S. invades Iraq. I think people have the right to defend themselves from the invasion of a Western aggressor. aggressor. Uh, the U.S. invades, you know, through, you know, the, the U.S. has some, you know, mild proxies in uh, uh, South Vietnam. But, but really, it's a U.S. invasion of Vietnam. And the Vietnamese have a right to defend themselves from invasion. Likewise, uh, you know, there's, there's a great quote by um, a Chinese, um, I don't know what he is. But anyway, he says this thing that's like, you know, the Chinese system is a, uh, a screen. And it, we, it lets the air in and it keeps the mosquitoes out. And it's like a state has the right to defend right, no, itself from a blood-sucking, you know, creature. You know what I'm saying? So it sounds like you're saying that if someone comes into your house, then you get to stand your ground. I, I mean, if somebody came in to, to here, and you were like, and he, he had a gun, and he was about to shoot us, uh, and you had a gun, I wouldn't say, no, no, dude, <laughs> no violence. <laughs> I'm against violence. You know, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, 
please. Well, I think part of America is built on exactly that thinking. So, um, but you, I mean, you disagree. I, no, I don't disagree. I, I mean, what would this country be if, um, you know, I, I talk about Lexington and Concord a lot, uh, only because it's it's important to um, it's important to the black narrative, right? How much blacks participated in uh, the Revolutionary War or the yeah. wars of secession against the, the King of England. Yeah. Uh, but certainly without the stores of guns and without fight, a violent fight uh, against the British forces, mm-hmm. There'd be no United States. Yeah. And this was, you know, I mean, we all know the history, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's like, think about the Civil War. Like, no one... Like, think of all... So many people died. And there's really not a valid argument for saying that shouldn't have happened. And Agreed. no, and no, Agreed. One, no one would say, oh, but Abraham Lincoln... He's got blood on his hands. And maybe some people would say, yeah, but we wouldn't take them seriously. There's some people somewhere, yeah. Fine. But you know what I'm saying? No one, no one would say, well, Abraham Lincoln is a bloodthirsty Nosferatu. No one would say that. Right. Even though hundreds of thousands of people died. So I, I don't think that we disagree there. Yeah, I think right? we agree. I, I think if someone comes into your house, you have the right to defend yourself. And the same with the Soviet Union. And the same with Stalin. So let, let's take it back to this, uh, this, this hole... Yeah, uh, the linen-shaped hole. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me about. So you're listening, and you're like, "Oh, it sounds like something is missing." What, what was missing? I think what was missing was dialectics. I think what was missing was uh, a class-based analysis. Um, I think what was missing was that there is a ruling class and there is a working class. Sure. That that's it, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because there there's a day, you know, like I, w- I was talking to you about Assad Hater's book. Right. It's called, um, I think it's called Mistaken Identity. Correct. And uh, it came out uh, maybe like a year and a half ago. It's really excellent, and he makes the the distinction between a ruling class identity politics and a working class identity politics, and. Um, you know, an example of a, a, a ruling class identity politics would be uh, the, the I'm with her, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, we need to get a woman. It's all about being a woman. I'm not arguing against uh, women's liberation. Right. Um, but but identity politics in that example is being used to further uh, the violence of the state, of the capitalist state. So... But we're we're talking about, but there's another, there's another kind of identity politics, okay. which is a working class identity politics. All right. So an example of that would be in my party. Um, there's uh, 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 there's so much diversity of people and opinion, and um, our party wouldn't be as strong as it is without people who are immigrants from Latin America, people who are immigrants from Africa, people black people. Um, trans people, women, you know, because everyone has their different ways of seeing the world and understanding the world. And through that, we get, we get a stronger uh, party. So that's an identity part. That's a working class identity part. Right. It's, it's the class identity, yeah. which I guess we did not talk about at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you've missed class identity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let me let me ask you a little bit about the the Hillary Clinton that class. Uh, I mean, there's some things that come to mind for me. Oh, boy. Um, and a, a lot of what comes to mind is people who are, um, let's say, of the same class, 
but differ politically? So educated city dwellers, I think, had a, you know, I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe I'm, maybe that's why I'm missing the entire class piece. Um, I guess I'm thinking of the the women in parts of the country who were staunchly against Hillary Clinton, even if they had similar class, uh, like like economic class, like sure upper middle class white women who voted for Trump. Sure. Tell me about that. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's like we're in the middle of a we're we're continuing the forever war, the forever war on terror, you know, um, which is sapping billions and billions and billions and billions. I mean, I think we're at trillions of dollars um, out of the uh, out of what could go into very strong and good social programs in the United States, like right. we're you know money for war and not the poor. You know, what I mean, it's like uh, you know instead of buying all those you know bombers that kill people, um, kill mostly Arab people, you know, instead we could be paying for free education, free healthcare. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that, you know, as Marx predicted, you know, uh, in a capitalist society, there's the more, you know, power and money get more and more monopolized. And so the rich truly are getting richer and the poor truly are getting poor. The, the book by, um, Ah, that French economist who wrote Capital for the 21st Century. I can't remember his name. Thomas Piketty? Uh, yes, yes. Um, he, you know, he, his entire book is just an endless proving of this basic Marxist idea that, you know, money and power get uh, uh, monopolized and the rich truly do get richer and the poor truly get poorer. So I think here... The class still doesn't feel like it can explain, but even if the rich are getting richer, yeah, I think this is true across the political aisle. I think that there are conservatives who are getting richer, yeah, there are liberals who are getting richer, absolutely. Um, and it doesn't, I feel like class doesn't necessarily explain enough of what's happening and why there's a divided identity there. there there's no solidarity. Well, I mean. So you're talking to a communist. So uh, the way I see it is that, um, you know, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party are two wings of the, you know, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist bird, <laughs> if you will. That's, that's a lot to unpack. So uh, the point the point I'm trying to make with the fact that rich are getting rich and poor are getting poor is that people are actually suffering and that uh, people are suffering more and more and more compared to where, where uh, a lot of particularly white people were in the 70s, 60s, you know, with like really strong unions. Like people are suffering more. That's the first thing. That's why my you, wife... you think people are suffering more today? Yeah. With the amount of medicine that we have, Correct. the amount of education that we have, That's right. the amount of housing that we have. That's right. Then let's say in the 1950s when the housing was more scarce and medicine was worse and food was less available, working conditions were, were harsher. That people yeah. are suffering more today. We can we can measure this. Okay. I mean, we can measure that 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 there you know that wages have stagnated since the 70s. I mean, just for inflation, is uh, the wages are roughly the same. But what about the overall but standard people, of living? Go ahead. In terms of like a social safety net. Yeah, like how, how secure people are. Right. 
I think people are getting less secure. It's like if you, you know, like millennials have less job opportunities than than you and I had on the whole. So, I mean, that that one's easy. Yeah. But what about Generation Xers compared to Boomers? Is it... Boomers had it better than Generation Xers. Oh, actually, maybe that was maybe that was roughly the same now that I think about it. I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that. Cut. <laughs> no, don't cut. So, like, you know, um, so that's the first thing that I would say is that that's why a lot of people voted for Trump because they're like, we need something better or something. He's the shiny object. Oh, maybe he'll change things. And he uses some of the kind of left rhetoric at that time, you know, kind of borrowing from Bernie's rhetoric. That's the first thing. The second thing is that racism is baked into capitalism as to be, they're inextricably linked. So wait, Brian, I have to push back, right? This, this, this is too much. When I think about capitalism, I think of a system where people who have capital, with fixed capital or circulating capital, they are able to engage in enterprises, mm. uh, free from or largely free from government intervention. They can start businesses where people are free in the market to mm. engage with this business or not engage with this business yeah. and extract the benefits that they see fit for themselves yeah. uh, with minimal regulation. I mean, that that's the yeah. essence of capitalism. How is that system... How is that inherently racist? Oh, there's two. I mean, where did that money come from? Think, uh, about, think about the the original accumulation of money and power in the United States. Where did that money come so from? So some people would say that it's from converting um, resources into capital. We're talking about the land. So planting seeds and so growing. Where, so where did the land come from, number one? Where did the land come from? Yeah. The land is there. Mm, I think somebody was there first. Say more. Well, there were people there, right, who were also converting, the, the you know, uh, right. producing from the land, right. Uh-huh. And there was a genocide against those people in order to free the land for the new. Oh, you settlers. just drop words like genocide, it's like, like it's nothing. I'm man. done. Boom. <laughs> uh, and the second thing is where did that where and, where and where else was was that money first accumulated in the United States? Um, you mean other than the land? So we we have Jamestown, right, uh, which almost didn't make it. You have some planters who are coming from... Uh, I mean, so these are people who almost died, who almost starved to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was an early smuggler who had a tobacco seed. Mm-hmm. And he had the first tobacco like kind of plant that was, that was happening. It was smuggled out of the Spanish Empire. Okay. And it was then that James Star- Jamestown started to thrive. And that's where people were getting... I feel like I know where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you, and you, you, I, I, I sent some pushback from you. Like I, you were sort I, of resisting. I feel that. like I know where you're going with this. Um, <laughs> How come you're resisting that? Because, so if we look at, so correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. You're going in a slavery direction correct. and um, yeah. dispossession of land from the indigenous Aboriginal people. Correct. correct. Is so that's part of the history of the United States that yeah. we shouldn't get away from, can't get away from. I mean, yeah. it's it's baked into our kind of um both structural and economic history continues to be yeah right Mm -hmm. so but that's not inherent to capitalism sure i would argue against that let me say i would argue against that how could so if we think about england um in what ways they have a different history so there's there are no dispossessed native americans in england for example yeah yet they still have capitalism and it's still functional through the exploitation of, of Africa and Africans, yeah. Is that 
So you're, you're talking and about their the, imperialist the, the project. The British Empire, yeah. And India, the British Empire, yeah. So is imperialism and capitalism, you think they're inseparable? Well, that brings us back to Lenin. That's Lenin's major contribution to, the, to Marxist theory. Is that cap- that capitalism is the uh, that imperialism is the new capitalism, that capitalism in its uh, inevitable monopolization of money and power, and also its need to constantly expand. Because I mean, today you know if the, if if you if company A doesn't appease its shareholders, then they're going to go to company B. Like it's inevitably and and the way that company B makes more money than company A is by uh, is by a, a, um, a deeper exploitation of its resources and workers. Okay, so let's say that I agree to the, to the exploit, which I don't, right? Okay. Um, and if we're looking at colonialism and the, the kind of imperial world, we're talking like yeah. 1800s, okay. most of the world is carved up. There are a few places that aren't, right? Right. Um, of those places that are spared, some of them have capitalist systems today, right? Like Thailand. So Thailand is mostly, I mean, it doesn't, you know, the French try and um, Thailand is one of these places that is never a colony fully. Um, China is never fully a colony, but they have a really complicated history, right? Britain, Opium Wars. Super complicated history, right? But not a colony in the same way, right? Hong Kong was. Uh, Carved up. Carved up. Occupied. The Chinese would argue that, that, that there was several occupied. imperial forces that, that occupied and colonized. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have... Um, let's skip some of the history because, well, yeah. there are four places that stand out. Ethiopia, Thailand, Iran, uh, and there's another one. Um, you shouldn't, I shouldn't be able to just come up with four, but I think, <laughs> I think that's actually the number. Okay, that's, uh, that's a pretty small percentage and, of the and, world. And, but and, we'll and I'm missing. Um, <laughs> but they, they have capitalist systems. Sure. Where there, there may or may not be exploitation. I, I would have to look at what's happening directly there. Okay. But that's not the same as racism. Uh, there are examples of capitalism without racism. Uh, but not That's not a... in the entire but but the entire capitalist system of course like needs it. I mean, there's a great book by um, Nazi Akazi came out a year ago. It's called Islamophobia, Race, and Global Politics, and it basically outlines uh, the history of Islamophobia in the United States and how it's completely linked with the history of U.S. empire. Going into the Middle East and and destroying Arab lives, you know, you, and you can't you can't have a, a military campaign against another country without racism. You 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 have to have racism to uh, legitimize it, to have it make sense to people. So, like, to you're just talking about like the dehumanization of another group, right? Yeah, exactly. The or really the the racialization of another group, which I, which you talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. Right, but if I'm thinking France and France and Britain, or even better, like Germany and, and Britain, like that's not a, it's not a, a, a racism issue, is it? I would say the Nazis had a racism issue, even with the Brits. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's, it's like what, I think what you're talking about a couple episodes ago as well—the invention of the white race, which is a pretty recent phenomenon. Sure, like late 1600s, something like that. Uh, so you can't you can't have an you can't have an occupation of a foreign country without xenophobia. You they have to be 
dehumanize. Yeah, I, 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 I agree way, with you. That's baked in. Yeah, in the same way that the police occupy black neighborhoods, you can't do that. You can't be. You can't have police uh, kill black people endlessly. And most of the time, 99% of the time, get away with it without racism. You have to have that racism to have it make sense to people. Oh, well, that's just black people. Oh, well, that's just Arab people. Oh, well, you know, those, those, everybody who practices Islam is, is quote unquote crazy or whatever. So, you know, what's funny that there's a, there's an idea that's out there. Actually, there are some psychological experiments. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about it in The Coddling of the American Mind is where we group people into arbitrary groups, right? Say, for example, um, some people get uh, three red jelly beans and some people get three yellow jelly beans. Yeah. Right? And then you, all the people know who got red jelly beans and who yeah. got yellow jelly beans. Yeah. And what you find is that, like, like people start to, if they have to divide, um, let's say, resources, they'll, they'll favor the... The yellow jelly bean people will favor the yellow jelly bean group, yes. e- even though this group just got made five minutes ago. Yes, and like that kind of gr- like that yeah. kind of weird group identity thing. Yes, uh, it, it is a thing. It seems it's like it's yeah, it's thing. a human. It's a that's encouraged by capitalism, socialism, and communism discourage that. Like there are certain aspects of the of human nature that that we have, and there's some that are are more altruistic and um, uh, collective. And communal, and there are some aspects of our psychology that are more like me, 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 right? And capitalism encourages the second one, and communism and socialism encourage the first one. And there's like a million examples of this. At some point, we're going to have to tackle some of those million examples. We're like, <laughs> like almost 40 minutes in. But here's what I want to say. I mean, you know, th- there's a... I'm, my commitment to being uncomfortable with yes. ideas is which part I, of I everything love. I that we need in order to, you know, like we can't have a conversation and we can't get to, I think, I think we both want this idea of human unity and human flourishing and for yeah. everybody to do well. Yes. Um, and, and we, and I think we, we are unified in that. I think um, the struggle between us is how we get there. If I'm understanding right. you. No, right. I, I, I agree. And, and, uh, you know, there's 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 examples in history. There's the 1917 Russian Revolution. Oh, hold on, let me. Let me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just. I'm, sorry. I, I'm only stopping you because yeah. we're like running out of time. I know. And there's like this is big enough yeah. that we just gotta. If you're willing, yeah. Uh, we gotta continue, and uh, I'd love to have you come back, and we can talk a little bit more and do some more expounding, and you can think of some stuff that uh, you kind of want people to think about. And, I'll have some much harder questions for you. This is very hard for me because I have one final point. Oh, well, sure. I have one final point. That that uh, we're both looking for human emancipation. Right. And, uh, you know, just like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. you know, you have, to have the, you have to have the first three or whatever right. hit before you can hit number four, five, and six or whatever. Right. And communism is about hitting those first needs. And so we both want that for people. And, uh, you know, we, we can study Lenin and we can study Mao in 1949. We can study Fidel in 1959. Like we can study uh, people who have emancipated their, uh, their people using. And what, what tools did they use? The tools they used were, uh, were Marxism-Leninism. Okay. Dope. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say less because this will be an hour long show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I think that's great. Uh, 
it, it's clear. I mean, I, I get the sincerity. I've also known you long enough to know that that's exactly what we want. Um, so yeah, I'm going to thank Brian Miller for his time and for sharing his thoughts and ideas. And hopefully we'll be able to get him again in the future and we can delve a little bit deeper into uh, how we get people free. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. For Heterodox Americana, this is Raphael. Thank you everyone for listening. If you have questions, I'm sure that you will. Feel free to shoot us some emails or find us on Facebook.